Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. James Spooner made a documentary in 2003 called Afropunk. It was a defining film for a generation of young Black people who felt like outsiders, like they didn't fit in any part of the mainstream, Black or otherwise. The film spawned a music festival that is today a global brand, a brand that, while wildly popular, just doesn't provide the same kind of space that James Spooner tried to carve out for punks like himself. So he's gone on trying to make that space in other ways. He published a graphic memoir in 2022, and this fall he'll publish a collection he co-edited with Chris Terry called Black Punk Now. I spoke with James Spooner recently as part of our ongoing series, Black History Is Now. We talked about his place in the story of punk rock and about the future he's helping today's younger Black punks create for themselves. So in your graphic memoir, you describe how you first get introduced to punk music. And I I think we want to start at that era in your life. What was life like for you at that moment? Can just kind of take us back to 1980s San Bernardino. So, uh... I moved from New York when I was like four or five to a series of small towns. These are Barstow, Victorville, Apple Valley. But basically, we're talking two hours from LA on the way to Vegas. And it was very white, very poor. And that was all fine as a little kid, you know. But I think once I got into middle school, that's when identities start to form and questions start to be raised. And it was also a time when my parents were divorced. So it was just like me and my mom, who's white. And I just was kind of lost, kind of angry. Had a bunch of questions that I didn't know I was asking. So, you know, I enter eighth grade and I'm a skater, and just on the first day of school, I see this really cool black kid with like spiky hair and a leather jacket, jumping all over his friends and stuff. And uh, he was a punk rocker who basically introduced me to that world. And I think that the options at the time felt limited, you know? Like when I looked around my school, especially at the kids of color, there was the beginnings of gangbanging, which just was not anything that made sense for me. I mean, it's hard to even imagine a time when people didn't know what gangster rap was or Crips and Bloods were or whatever. But at that time, 1988, 1989, like Boys in the Hood hadn't come out yet. So 
when people were talking about gangsters, like, I was totally confused. You know, and then the other end of the spectrum was MC Hammer. And, like, I just wasn't willing to wear those pants. <laughs> I had I had some I had some pants like that. I'm gonna have to tell you, James. I, I, I in fact was willing to wear the pants. Um, <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> of course, we are talking about more than fashion and music here. We're talking about who James thought he could be as a black person in the late 1980s. What were the boundaries? That spiky-haired kid showed him a frontier, and he ran for it. He says a big draw was the punk scene's DIY vibe. You got to think about punk rock starting in the early mid-70s and it not, quote-unquote, breaking, going mainstream until the mid-90s, right? So for 20 years, it was just a completely underground thing. So do-it-yourself is... Kids, literal kids, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, putting on shows, doing photography, being on stage, and it's really empowering. I had a record label uh, when I was 17, and I would go to a recording studio and, you know, be there while the band recorded, get my little dat tape, send it off to get it pressed into vinyl, and send them to other punk distributors. I was a distributor, so... We had this whole network, this whole underground thing going on, which still exists to this day. I want to pause here. You were 17 years old with a record label, and you weren't unusual as a teenager in a punk scene to do that kind of thing. And I think it's very, it is certainly very difficult for me to wrap my head around that. Yeah, I mean, it does sound crazy, but you're also thinking, you're picturing me in some like, uh, recording studio behind glass with like an engineer being like, yo, put more, uh, you know, bass <laughs> up in that or what. like, this is literally like some dude's home. You know, the singer is in the bathroom, you know, screaming, uh, on the mic. And, um, you know, there were, there were mentors, there were people who had been doing it for five years or already. So, when I would go to them and say, like, how do I get this into a piece of vinyl? They would say, oh, you have to get it mastered. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, just send it to this person. They'll yeah, do it for yeah. you, you know? And I know that mastering now is like an art that you're supposed to be there and, like, watch every <laughs> uh, knob get turned and whatever. I never even listened to it because how am I going to play a dat tape, you know? <laughs> It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Do you remember the point that you started to think about racial identity in the context of the scene that you were helping create? 
so right off the top, I was I was forced to think of it because I was a black kid in a scene that was filled with Nazis, you know, like just straight up violent white supremacists. Can you give us the history of that? What What is the relationship between neo-Nazis and punk music? Yeah, the brief history of, of skinhead is you've got these like Jamaican working class kids in England who are going to school and working alongside white poor kids and they're all listening to soul music and and ska music which is like the beginnings of reggae and creating bands and it's really uh, about unity between the races some of the like dumber members of that community are infiltrated by the national front which is the white power political organization of in England at the time, and uh, they take on the same look, right? So, uh, you know, in the early 80s, when the Nazi skinheads start making news, they start getting like on Geraldo and these kind of talk shows or whatever, they kind of win the publicity battle on like what a skinhead is, right? It wouldn't be the first time that racist white people took somebody else's uh, culture <laughs> to... to uh, you know, for their own, right? <laughs> James moved to New York City in his later teenage years, and their race came up in a whole different way. I met a group, a band um, called Bushman, and um, they were all black and totally punk rock. And when I went to see them, I was like, for once I felt like they were the coolest people in the room, and by association or by proximity, I was cool. It made me feel like my blackness was an asset. Mm. You know, there were times where my blackness didn't feel like an asset and I wanted to just fit in or fade to the background or whatever. But it was in my early 20s that I really started to contemplate this stuff, to want to ask those questions publicly. Mm. So, you know, that's where I decided that I wanted to make a documentary. And how did you get started with that? Like, who did you find to interview? This is the year 2000, before social media. And I remember going on message boards and asking, Jin, who is the black punk in your scene? And people would respond like, oh, you got to talk to Black Chuck. Wow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when you found them um, and they started talking to you, were you surprised about the things they had to say? Like, what, what took you when you started actually talking to them? You know, this is a documentary with an agenda. Like, I definitely already knew the answers. <laughs> there was only one answer that I didn't expect. I asked, what does it feel like when you see another Black person at a show? The response I was looking for was like, oh, you know, like, I give them a nod. It's kind of exciting. and say, what's up? But other people were like, I kind of was like, yo, why are you at my show? Like, oh, wow. I'm supposed to be the only one here. And when they said that, I was like, ooh, I felt that too. I, fe I felt that experience of being like, yo, I'm the black person here. Tell, um, tell me about that, James, like this moment of like protecting, <laughs> protecting your otherness almost. For me, I remember feeling that when there was another mixed race boy in the room, like, I felt kind of like gatekeeper-ish. Like, I remember this other mixed race kid and being like, just having this desire to like, 
clown him or like just make him feel unwelcome. There's a lot of like self-hate that I had to work through while making the film. And editing really was like a talk therapy kind of thing. Listening to other people mm. tell their stories and relating so well. I'm like, yeah, like that project healed me from a lot of pain, yeah, you know? Yeah. James also didn't expect how the black punks who recognized their own stories in his film would react. He had created a website with a message board because, you know, this is pre-social media. And it was just a place where all these black punks from all over the country and parts of the world would connect every day. So there became this conversation about like, let's do a meetup. And I understood like, these are punks. They're going to do this with or without me. <laughs> right. So I better get in front of this. I met this dude, Matthew Morgan, and he's a music manager. Santi White is the singer of Santo Gold. And she was in a punk band called Stift and he was her manager. No, he's got my- And he was trying to get her signed, and he liked the idea of Afropunk helping to do that. And we started doing basically monthly events, like right off the top, first one. We're in a room uh, at the Delancey in the East Village, probably 150 people, uh, 97% of them are black, and we have a mosh pit. So I'm like, I have the thing. Yeah. Like the thing yeah. just happened. It was the space he had been searching for all his life, a space where people like himself were just comfortably doing their thing together. And fast forward a year, and these message board kids are talking about meeting up, and that's where the festival comes in. And basically, the first Afropunk festival was a black film festival of like radical black films, and three concerts at different parts in the city. And then at the end of it all, a punk rock picnic in Fort Greene Park. We actually combined forces with this other collective who were doing shows called the Sister Girl Riots. And that was four different black women who would put together these shows to kind of spotlight black female punk musicianship. And it took off. Sponsors got interested, and there became a pressure to grow the space beyond just a few hundred Black punks, to add the kind of bands that would draw larger crowds of Black youth, to book more hip-hop, for instance. And not that I have a problem with hip-hop, but the things that people were saying on stage, now I'm dealing with homophobia on the Afropunk stage, you know? Right. Now I'm dealing with sexism on the Afropunk stage. Like, this is stuff that we were adamantly against and now we're essentially promoting it. There were a number of compromises that I couldn't stomach. You know, doing things that just feel really not organic and not punk. Though, to be super clear, James is not out here to trash the expanded Afropunk. He says if he was 20-something now, he'd probably be there having fun too. I try to tread lightly here because I am not mad at like what it became. Mm -hmm. You know, It's just that it's different. When I 
first started doing the shows, I was excited because it was the early 2000s and I felt like black people could or were, were shoved into one of two lanes, right? You could either be kind of like puffy, you know, popping bottles, uh, crystal, you know, jiggy, black, or you could be kind of like neo soul, Erica Badu, Andre 3000, black, right? Those were the lanes. Choose one, you know? And I felt like Afropunk could create a third lane. And for a short time, it did. Yeah. But, you know, there, there is a question that's worth asking is like, is it okay to gentrify out one marginalized group in order to like make space for another one, mm. you know? And that's what a lot of the kids who built Afropunk, that's how they feel. They feel like they've been gentrified out. And how have they responded to that feeling? Did they create more new spaces? Yeah, so if you look at the entire history of punk, it's always all the best parts of it are all in reaction to something else, you know? And um, in this case, there's at least 10 different people who went to the festival were disillusioned with what they found and went back to their hometown and started their own black and brown festival. And whether that's uh, Break Free Fest in Philly or uh, Decolonize in London, these festival organizers are much like I was at 17 with my record label, just saying like, yo, I can do better than that, you know? Mm -hmm. And doing their own thing. Are you and in touch with them? Do they, do they turn to you for advice or support or help in any way? Yeah, I've been in touch with all of them. And, you know, now we are, we're friends. They, you know, it's funny because I gave them something to react to, but they're trying to emulate what they think those early days were like. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I think they're doing better, you know? And like earlier when I said like a lot of the kids, the black kids that I came up with felt like they wanted to kind of uh, fade into the background, like that's not happening anymore. All the black fronted punk bands that I, that I, I could rattle off a, a number of them that are um, very explicitly black. And they're some of the biggest bands in the punk scene period. Bands like Soul Glow, or Zulu, you could ask any white hardcore kid in the Midwest and they'd tell you like, yeah, this is one of the best and biggest bands, you know? You can tell that these kids, they grew up with a, a confidence in their blackness that I didn't and a confidence in the scene that they could be themselves. These bands feel so authentic to me. So, it's so exciting whether they're women-fronted, queer-fronted, like there's just more stories and they're so much more exciting than what we've been hearing for the last 45, 50 years of punk rock. James Spooner's seminal documentary, Afropunk, debuted back in 2003. His new book, Black Punks Now, will be out this fall. 
To catch more of our Black History Is Now segments, go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the tab labeled specials. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Additional mixing this week by Leora Nome Kravitz. Reporting, producing, and editing by Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out.